0: Let's be honest, the core principles of leadership are evolving by necessity. So, in this disrupted landscape, how can leaders best support their teams while successfully demonstrating their company's values? In this episode, I speak to Gordon Treadgold, CEO of Leadership Principles and one of the world's top leadership experts, about how our significantly disrupted world has impacted leadership and why it's important that we simplify complex processes so that people can be successful.
1: The, the power of simplicity is that it gets people started, and you know one of the things I always say is people are not afraid of hard work, they're afraid of failure. When we complicate things and they can't see how they'll be successful, then people will procrastinate about starting, they will look for other things that they could do instead where they can be successful.
0: So, ready for an honest conversation about leadership in a disrupted world? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Gordon Treadgold, thank you for joining me.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me. My pleasure.
0: You're very welcome. So Gordon is one of the top leadership experts in the world, which I know we had a conversation about before that. So maybe that still blows your mind. I don't know. I think that's pretty impressive. I'd interested to know your thoughts around how you've gotten to that point first, before we kind of dive into some interesting leadership topics for our interesting world we're living in today.
1: Well, a lot of it uh, came from, you know, being in leadership positions for 20-30 uh, years and the the last permanent job I had um, I was working in Germany and I was delivering great results for them but they kept criticizing my leadership style they wanted me to be more of a command and control leader uh, the way they were but they brought me in to deliver projects that they couldn't deliver themselves and, and for me it was because of the style of leadership they wanted and um. I kept getting bad reviews in spite of great results and I I kept going back and looking through all of the testimonials I got from people who who I'd led and um, people liked the way I led and that just got me thinking that, you know, maybe what I need to do is to share my approach because I'm delivering good results and, and people like the way I lead so maybe it's something that other people would want to learn how to do so in 2013 I wanted to write a book didn't know how so I thought I'll start with a blog and within three months my blog was in the the top 50 which just blew my mind and and I was writing an article a day and um, that just snowballed I've written over 1500 articles on leadership I built a following online that I shared those articles with, which then gave me a lot of readership and you know visibility, gave me some authority. That got me ranked in the Inc top 100 leaders. So I approached Inc about writing for them on leadership. Uh, I wrote about 300 articles for Inc, and then I was writing for Entrepreneur, speaking on leadership. And I was just putting out a lot of content that really resonated with people and my blog got moved up into the top five uh, leadership blogs, lots of engagement, and, um, yeah, it kind of went from there, putting out good, simple content on leadership that people could read, understand, and then go and uh, act upon and, and become better leaders.
0: Yeah, I I love that story because you started from that place of going against the grain. Yeah. Not necessarily exactly meeting the mold that people expected from a leader, but finding that that leadership style is working for people that work for you and people who work with you.
1: So one of the big changes for me was I, I worked in IT, so I was always dealing complex projects. And at the start of my career, I could lead from the front. Uh, And I read this really good article or book, I can't remember which it was, but I had what you would call a Captain Kirk style of leadership. Led from the front, I tackled all of the issues and everything, and I, I got a great reputation. But the problem with that style of leadership where you are the hero, it will only get you so far. Because once you get promoted to that next level and the next level up, it's not about what you can do, it's about what you can get other people to do Mm. and you know as i said this great article on star trek leadership it talks about making that transition from being captain kirk who's the hero to being captain picard in the next generation who you know gets his team into the ready room discusses the problem and then delegates the task out for the experts to go and be the leader and it, it was when i made that transition from not needing to be the hero but actually creating more heroes that that allowed me to really rock it up the hierarchy because now I was able to have a much bigger span of control and then impact within that span of control. But it, it's a difficult thing to give up that desire to be a hero. You know, that's where all your alpha male and females are wanting to be the hero, but You've got to drop it, and it does require a little bit of humility. But you've got to go into the hero-making business rather than the hero-being business.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of benefit from leaders who help others rise up into positions of leadership without having to be the superhero, but instead build superheroes
1: around them. And I'm sure when people say that, they're probably thinking, "Oh, that sounds good," you know. Uh, and we talk about servant leadership, and leadership needs to be about service, not self-service. But actually, me making more heroes is still self-serving because it allows me to move up. So it's actually win-win. If I have to stay at a particular level to successfully do the job, then I can't move up. So actually creating more and more leaders is what allows me to rise up that organization. But as I said, too many people can't give up being that hero or are unwilling to create other heroes because they, I don't know whether they fear the competition or, or what it is, but it, it's that letting go and being more influential that allows you to rise up and actually have much bigger, much broader impact.
0: Yeah, it's definitely breaking that expectation of of what a leader is, and you know, defining a leader as someone who's um, omnipotent and all powerful, and yeah. that's not the reality of what's working, especially in today's world. Things are moving so quickly;
1: there's just it just doesn't work anymore. You see, I I disagree with you a little bit, and I'm not trying to be contentious. Here. When you say it doesn't work anymore, it it never fair. worked. <laughs> but it never worked. Yeah, and and I think the problem now is that. It works even less now when we're we're in this distributed world with virtual teams. You've got to be a, much more of a leader and, and less of a manager. And yeah, I, I don't think command and control ever worked, but it's even less uh, less successful now than it's ever been.
0: Yeah, very fair point. Um, and much better said than I did as well. But I think that's really interesting when you think about it from a culture perspective, because obviously you think a lot about corporate cultures around. The leadership, um, what what can what kind of culture can a leader build around them in order for that organization to meet its goals? And you've got a really simple three step approach around culture. How do we make it simple? How do you make it so leaders can create this culture around them that can allow them to meet their goals?
1: Before we talk about that, I'll just mention something else, and I'll, I'll share this with you, and, and people can download it or approach me and I'll email it to them. I actually create a thing called uh, strategic alignment. In order for an organization to be massively successful, you've got to have the right culture in place, which is working on the right mission with an aligned vision and then goals to deliver that vision. And I I created this, you know, the pyramid of that. And a lot of times you'll see companies where they want to be innovative, but, you know, they set goals and vision of being innovative, but their culture is a mismatch so you've got to make sure all of those things are aligned you can and you can start with vision this is where we want to be then what kind of culture do we need but it's actually a lot easier to understand what kind of culture do we have and, and build up from there but once you've done that alignment and you've got to tweak the culture then that's where i use that three step approach of you know say it live it reinforce it and Saying it is about defining the culture. I'm working on a project with Fujitsu, and they have a culture which is one Fujitsu. And yet, when I ask people what that means, I get multiple different answers. So even though it sounds simple, it's not something that everybody understands. And if people can't understand it, then how can they live it? So we've got to define the culture, explain what it is, what our expectations are of it. And once we've done that, then people can go away and and start to live it themselves. But we also need to live it to to be role models for it. And uh, and when I worked in in that uh, German company, we actually created a culture that was right for our environment. We had a culture of we care. We care about our employees. Mm -hmm. We care about our customers. We care about our performance. And because we articulated it that way, people understood what it meant and what were the behaviours that we were expecting of them. So we take care of each other. If people are struggling, we go and help them. Our customers, we care about their deadlines, making sure the, the quality is right. And we also care about our results and performance. I see a lot of companies create cultures with like seven or eight values in but when you do that it becomes too big and it's difficult to understand what it means so we've got to keep it simple so people can understand it then live it and then reinforce it when you see people exhibiting the culture then you need to call it out and praise them and then one other thing i would say on that is that you know we talk a lot about praise in public criticise in private but when it comes to culture if people are not living the culture then we actually need to call that out in public you know if we've got a culture of diversity and inclusion and somebody's being sexist or racist we have to call that out in public because if we don't and we criticize it in private people don't see that and they'll think that our silence publicly is actually condoning and accepting that deviation from the culture so we've got to praise people who live the culture and we have to call out people who are, are not living the culture but you know but do it in a polite and courteous way just say hey that's not the way we do things around here you know we have diversity and inclusion so stop interrupting let somebody speak up or whatever the infraction might be
0: but I can see how, if you articulate the culture in very simple terms, like we care, those types of public acknowledgements of these situations. I mean, the intention is then well known. It's not about punishment. It's not about public criticism or shame. It's about this is what we're willing to tolerate because we care. We care about our employees. We we want to demonstrate that through our actions.
1: Well, it's it's interesting what's going on in America now with the politics, and I'm not going to be pro or anti or anything like that i think you know politics is a is a minefield it's interesting watching that to see you know which way do they go because it will have an impact on the definition of what's acceptable in that culture and it's exactly the same in businesses and in families and team sports all of that what we what we accept and don't call out we we effectively uh, condone and encourage
0: Mm, Such an excellent point. I think the fact that we all try to tiptoe around that issue almost makes the problem worse, right? But people are afraid to talk about that stuff, or people are afraid to bring it up or condone it or to publicly denounce things that are, you know, clearly unacceptable to many people. But, you know, that fear really comes from the fact that there's a group of folks that will step up. And publicly hold people accountable for things that don't follow their belief system. And it really comes down to beliefs rather than truths, right? So yeah, I think it's interesting to think about how something like that can build in an organization where you have one set of beliefs that are challenged whether right or wrong and and how things kind of play out in an environment uh, that might silence people based on the fear of retribution or speaking up or speaking against the status quo or or whatever it might be.
1: Yeah. One of my biggest shames and regrets is I worked for a company and we had a a big program of diversity and absolutely everybody in the company uh, embroached diversity. And, it was just bizarre how they did it one year it was about diversity of race and they promoted that and then the second year it was the diversity of women and when we talked about you know oh you know we, we need to do a little bit more on the race and it was like oh well that was last year we're doing women this year and i thought clearly you don't get inclusion it's not about getting a turn at it. <laughs> uh, but in the year when it was uh, women there was one of my peers was up for promotion and didn't get it and she was at a point where it was either up or out and she ended up deciding to leave and at her leaving do you know my boss said to her it's sad that you've made the choice to leave but you know to be honest this is going to give you a ch- a chance to stay home and look after your children mm. and I never said anything uh, and there was about 20 people in the room and I, I regret not step, step, saying excuse me that's irrelevant that's nothing to do with it. That's that's her choice. You know, you we can't be promoting diversity and yet be thankful that a woman's leaving because now she can go home and look after her children the way we think she should be doing. You know, we we have to call these things out. And you know, my boss was a bully at that time, but I will regret not speaking out until I go to the grave. You know. We just have to do it sometimes.
0: Yeah. And I think that's kind of the same thing that we start to see, not even just in politics here in the US, but in organizations. Yeah. Many people seeing the same kind of trends they disagree with, but being afraid to speak up in those organizations to affect change. Once you find a tipping point where you get enough people, either enough people willing to speak up or the right leader, the right leader willing to rest these issues head on and say something in the room and say, this is something we won't accept, period.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I think sometimes we we don't know how to broach it, and I've thought about this. So you can do it in a kind of a polite way, but we have to call it out. It doesn't mean criticizing the person. You're just calling it out and saying, hey, you know, I don't think that's relevant to this discussion. It's hard to do at the time, hard to do at the time. And I think sometimes, you know, these unconscious biases, we don't even see them. It's not until afterwards we play it back and we think, hang on a second, that was wrong.
0: Yeah. We hope that we can be self-aware enough to learn from those experiences too. But um, I think that's another sign of a very good leader who's willing to admit to mistakes and move forward and you know do better, I think, and also influence positive change in, in their organization. A lot of times leaders think about these things in very complex terms. You know, one of those things that I know that we've talked about before is how do you simplify these complex problems in, in organizations?
1: Yeah, I say it all the time, we seem to have a world class ability to overcomplicate things. And we just need to just try and, you know, find simple ways. It's like, you know, it's like my three step approach to defining culture. I shared that with somebody and they said, oh, are you sure that would work? There's, there's this other methodology, which is nine steps. And I thought, how far are you going to get down nine steps before you stop doing it? How are you going to communicate and get more people you know, involved in that? And a lot of the time, the, the power of simplicity is that it gets people started. And you know, one of the things I always say is people are not afraid of hard work. They're afraid of failure. When we complicate things and they can't see how they'll be successful, then people will procrastinate about starting. They will look for other things that they could do instead where they can be successful, and, and they will they will go and do those. So it's paramount that we simplify processes, we look to make things as easy as possible. And if it is still complicated, because there is a lot of complexity around, that we explain it in a simple way so that people understand it i mean that uh, do you know what the formula is for um special relativity
0: is that the e equals mc squared
1: it is but that's not the formula the formula is much bigger than that but that's a simplified view of it and everybody knows oh yeah E equals mc squared But if you actually look at the full formula there's a lot more to it than that but by just pulling it down to E equals mc squared They can understand that, they can engage with it, and then you can move them onto the more complex part of it, if that makes sense. So, yeah, simplicity, we've got to encourage it. We've got to reward it. We've got to look for it. And the more you look and practice it, the better you will get at it. It, It's almost like a muscle that we have to exercise.
0: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And I think people do definitely fall into the trap of thinking they need a complex solution to a complex problem. Oh, yeah, I've seen that happen over and over, and I also see these complex solutions, um, you know, in you know, placed into organizations. And to your point, people don't remember all of the steps involved. If they have to go back and continue to refer to a model every time they make a decision or move forward, it's not working.
1: Yeah, and, and complexity kills efficiency. If we can take the complexity out of the processes uh, and break it down and explain it and see it simply, it's much easier. For us to correct mistakes and optimize things when it's a forty seven step process with three or four sub steps per stage, it's almost impossible to get your head around it to so the point of oh, I can't be bothered trying to fix this I'll just follow it and see where it takes me and you know once you're in that mindset you've almost given up any possibility of doing a better job or even doing a good job. Mm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we're in this place where we've gone through massive disruption, actually still going through massive disruption on a global scale. Mm -hmm. People are having visions of going back to some level of uh, new normal or normalcy or back to whatever it is that that they miss. But now there's still a lot of uncertainty. What's the best way for leaders to address the level of uncertainty we're dealing with? not even just from an organization's perspective and what they're trying to do to achieve their goals, but when they're trying to help their people move forward, stay motivated and engaged in their work, what are some of the things that leaders can do to help uh, you know, keep their people moving forward in these times of uncertainty?
1: So I think there's a, there's a couple of things that people can do. I think the, the first one we can do is we can be honest. If we're not honest, then people become uncertain as to why we're not being honest. Uh, and we've now added to that uncertainty. And I think people can accept, you know, for things like COVID, when's it going to be over? We don't know. So there is a degree of uncertainty and vagueness around it. But we have to be open and clear and honest about that. And then I think what we need to do is we need to look to see where we can provide certainty. What are the things that we do know? Uh, And then start to get people focusing on those. You know, it's like a journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step. So what are some of the first steps we can take? What is the right direction for us to be be going into? And don't give people misleading information or tell people, oh, everything will be back to normal in the next three weeks. It won't. And people can see that. and, And now you've just made them. A little bit more uncertain so try and find something where you can give them something that they can do there's a great book that i read called um, emotional equations and one of them was talking about stress and anxiety and stressing and anxiety is a product of uncertainty and powerlessness and what we need to do is give people some degree of certainty and then some options that they can take. Because at least once they've got some options, it gives them a little bit of power. It's like if you're going to get rid of 10% of your organization, while people don't know whether they're in the 10% or not, they're going to be stressed. And if they are in the 10%, you're going to let go. What you can do is you can say, okay, I'm sorry, but you're going to be the ones that's going to be let go. But these are your options. You can take this package. You can do this training. You can look for a decision in another department. And when you give people options, it allows them to now step forward and take some actions. So we've got to look at what is the area of certainty and what options can we give people. So it's like now, you, you, know, you can work from home, you can come to the office if you want, if it's safe, or you know give them things that they can look to work on and put the ball back into their court so that they can take some steps in a direction that's going to move us forward. And once we start getting them moving forward, you know, we're going to be out of anxiety and start making, you know, some progress. It might be slow and it might be small, but it's better than no progress and anxiety. And it could be we are in, a, you know, the restaurant business, so we're going to have to move to a new model. What would that new model be? Let's start coming up with some ideas. Let's come up with suggestions. Let's come up with alternate business models. I have a friend and she's a restaurateur. What she's now doing is she's providing food to hospitals. You know, they used to have in-hospital um, in kitchens. They can't function because they, they don't have the staff coming in. So she went and, and did a deal with them where she would come and provide them with meals. So what else can you do? My brother was a, a mountain guide. He used to take companies on team building for hiking. Now what he does is he has them. He's calculated how many flights of stairs you need to go up to climb the various mountains in the UK, also you know, Mount Everest, and he has them doing virtual trekking in their own home. So we just got to, you know, empower them, give them some direction, a little bit of guidance, and um, let them go forward.
0: Yeah. I think one of the things that holds people back or keeps people stuck is feeling like there aren't any options yeah. or they can't see any options for them to move forward as i
1: say you know even if you're letting people go if you could say that, you know these are the three options at least now they know and now at least they can take action it, it's the not knowing and uh, worrying about it that's the, you know that's the stress and anxiety that people suffer with
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I think giving people a few options to see possibilities, but also encouraging people to take a step and take control over some aspects that they can. Yeah. It's not even just for, you know, leaders and organizations, but people in their lives, being able to understand that there's still actions that they can take to move forward from this place where they're feeling very stuck or uncertain. It's hard, especially now on a mass scale. Something that certainly many of us have never experienced in our lives.
1: I actually think the economic turmoil is gonna be painful for a lot. Long- of people for a number of years I don't doubt that but I actually think this is going to be beneficial for us because it is going to get us to look at different ways of working I was fortunate that you know before the pandemic struck I was I was doing a project for Fujitsu I was already leading uh, remote teams from home so I'd had about eight months of working from home leading other remote teams and and to be honest I preferred it You know, not having to get up, not having to get into a rush hour traffic for an hour, stressed, arriving at work in a bad mood because somebody had cut me up. Remote working will become much more of the norm. And a lot of companies that said it wasn't possible, we've proved it is possible. But now how do we move that forward and make it better for everybody? I think what we're going to find is that you know people like myself, I, I quite actually like working remote. Some people are not going to be set up to do that. Some people are not going to want to do that. So how do we create that work environment that you know we we often talk about the future of work, um, but I think this has been a, a huge disruption to that. How do we set that up in a way that's most optimal to our teams? What do they what are they looking for? And maybe we just go and have those conversations. And find out what works. And I doubt that everybody will want to work from home 100%. Because some will miss the social interaction. So I I suspect it will be a a mix of the two for those that can.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think one of the things that folks have struggled with the most is being away from people or feeling very isolated. Even folks, I think, that are more introverted, it can be very difficult to feel very isolated from not even just the people you work with, but your family members, your friends, uh, people in your community, maybe your neighbors. Um, For a lot of folks, they're they're really struggling with that right now. So I agree. Once we're able to get out and hopefully get back in an environment where we're around people more, I think a lot of people are going to snatch up that opportunity, while others might Enjoy the flexibility of being able to work remotely, and now most organizations are set up for that.
1: One of the things that surprised me the most about the lockdown and its impact on performance is feedback. And um, one of my favorite speakers on performance is Stephen Colbert. I used to watch, you know, the Colbert monologue and his show every week, and it was interesting that when we went into lockdown and he lost the audience. If you go back and you watch his performances from March of last year in front of a live studio audience, he's unbelievable. His timing, his poise, his delivery. But then you go and watch him when he's performing at home with no audience, with zero feedback. I don't know whether he's doing it on Zoom or whether he has one cameraman there. You go back and watch his performances in April and May this year, and you will see a distinct. Performance drop. And it's all because he's losing that feedback, that connection with his audience. And he's a consummate professional. And if you watch him now, he, he's mastered that. And you see the same with uh, Jimmy Fallon and um, some of the Jimmy Kimmel. They've now brought in small audiences to perform in front of them because we all need that feedback. You know, we need to know what we're doing is on the right track, that we're doing okay, that this is going to work, that people like it. And, you know, as leaders, if we're going to be leading much more in a remote way, we've got to be giving that feedback. And I'm not talking necessarily about praise. It's just that knowing, oh, yeah, I'm on the right track. This is, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. I'm making progress. and moving forward. Because without it, you know, people like Stephen Colbert, uh, jimmy kimmel and jimmy fallon watching them their performance dropped significantly when they when they missed that human connection and that real-time feedback mm,
0: yeah just the little things that we don't think about or probably took for granted in the past
1: i found it difficult to watch because it was just flat there was limited engagement limited enthusiasm mm. just going through the motions and and i was watching i thought wow if that can happen to somebody who's a, one of a top professional in their field, what does that mean to my teams when I am you know, reaching out to them and saying, hey, you're doing good. This is fine. Keep going. It's just what I want. What's the impact on them?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great example. I was just thinking of different um, shows I was watching at the time when, yeah. you know, early last year when the pandemic hit and things started getting shut down, I watched, um, Night Live was one another one that yeah. I'd watched that they did a remote episode. They're all at home and they're trying to do skits and they're all just kind of doing it in front of the camera. And it was the same kind of thing. It didn't feel the same at all.
1: It's not that they're doing it remotely that looks odd for us. It's how they're managing that emotionally. We you know, we, we see their reduced confidence uh, and diminished enthusiasm because they're like, is this working? Is this thing on Yeah. And we'll pick up on that. So, you know, going forward, we're going to have to look and see how do we compensate to make sure we're we're providing, you know, these kind of things that people need. And again, this is why command and control style leadership ain't working. The the need for high level of engagement requires a higher level of emotional intelligence from us to have that empathy and self-awareness an awareness of others that we can then meet that need to keep them empowered, enthusiastic, and engaged.
0: Yeah, so very important. Absolutely. So I'm wondering, now that we're kind of thinking and talking a little bit about the future, what's something that makes you optimistic about the future?
1: One of the things that's made me optimistic for quite a while is that, you know, from my own perspective, I'm I'm now a top expert in leadership. And 30 years ago, that wouldn't have been possible because I, I would have needed to have had some level of academic accreditation in order to get a book deal with the right company. And, and the barriers to entry to so many things were so much higher. You know, it's like music. To produce music, you needed to get a record deal. Whereas now, a, a lot more things are a lot more accessible to people, and I think it's a lot easier to start your own business, you know, become a musician, and an author, whatever it is you want to do. I think the barriers to entry are lower. And I think that's going to allow us to see, you know, more people trying more things. And we're going to see a a much faster evolution in the way that business is done and business models and services that people will offer. And I think that, for me, that's a positive because I think people are creative. We do have a strong... Creative streak, and uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think that you know, this COVID crisis is probably going to spark that so that lower barriers to entry, you know, our creative capability, and then something that's going to push us. So I think we're going to see a lot of big changes, big developments that are going to be beneficial for people.
0: Yeah, I sure hope so. I mean, I think that's one of the things that often comes out of times of significant disruption is that we learn something yeah. that are, are motivated to do something to, to make a change. And I think a lot of these changes that we're talking about, even those changes you just talked through, have been long have long necessary.
1: I, I don't know how many, how many meetings where we've been talking about People would like to work from home one day a week or two days a week. And, you know, you get into the meeting with HRs like, oh, it's not possible. We don't trust people. They won't work. You know, it'll be casual. It's like people want to take off Monday and Friday. They'll do one day, you know, one Friday and then the following Monday and they'll take a four-day weekend. And so much was held back because of people's concern. Uh, that now we, we've moved forward and done that, so yeah, I think there is going to be a lot of uh, a lot of upside to this, uh, as, as well as some downside.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hopefully, more upside.
1: I am an eternal optimist, so I think there'll be more there'll be more upside to this.
0: Yeah, really thinking about the future in optimistic terms allows us to realize that even though something might be uh, less than ideal today, uh, we have a great opportunity to make it better in the future.
1: And I think one of the things, certainly for, for me being English, one of the things I know about England is that one of the lowest paid sectors of the marketplace was nurses. And I think now we all see the incredible value and service that they provide. And and hopefully, you know, some of these things will start to value a lot of the roles that we have been dependent on over the last uh, 12 months, much higher, and, and there'll be a lot more equality and uh, benefit for those people in those roles that you know are absolutely necessary to us, rather than some of the ones that we hold in higher esteem, which have been less critical to our survival.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Great thoughts about what our opportunities might be. I think really just shaping something better for us, and within our organizations, and of course out in the world, and what a what a great difference we can all make uh, working together in that regard. So. Um, so folks, go check out Gordon's website on gordontreadgold.com. He's got an amazing blog with amazing writing. So go out there, check that out. But he also you learn all about all the amazing work that he does as well with his leadership, coaching, workshops, uh, He public speaking. He's a great individual, of course, um, as you can tell during this conversation. So Gordon Treadgold, this has been an amazing pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you, my pleasure.
0: As we shared, Gordon has been listed as one of the world's top leadership experts. I believe he's gotten there not only because of his amazing blog posts or experience in leadership, but also because he's demonstrated three key aspects of success authenticity, empathy, and initiative. Gordon shared some great insights on in leadership, its evolution over time, and even his own evolution over time. He reflects on his experience while taking the time to recognize what's changed around him. For instance, Moving to a remote workforce introduces relatively new challenges in leadership, such as combating the loneliness caused by isolation, as well as the value of authentic, real time feedback in a virtual workplace. Make no mistake, we will continue to learn, and leadership will continue to evolve. As that happens, consider not only Gordon's valuable insights, but also how you, as a leader, can model the behaviors that have led to his success. Listen, learn, Be yourself. And when you have great ideas to share, take the initiative to do that. That is what great leaders do. And really, all you need to do is see yourself as that great leader. Then take the next steps to get there. And while you're at it, go on. Go help shape the future. To check out Gordon's amazing work, go to gordontreadgold.com. That's gordontreadgold.com. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Episode notes can be found at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.